Joint and several liability. Where two or more persons are liable in respect of the same liability, in most common law legal systems they may either be jointly liable, or severally liable, or jointly and severally liable. Joint liability. If parties have joint liability, then they are each liable up to the full amount of the relevant obligation. So if a married couple takes a loan from a bank, the loan agreement will normally provide that they are to be jointly liable for the full amount. If one party dies, disappears, or is declared bankrupt, the other individual remains fully liable. Accordingly, the bank may sue all living co-promisers for the full amount. However, in suing, the creditor has only one cause of action. For example, the creditor can sue for each debt only once. If, for example, there are three partners, and the creditor sues all of them for the outstanding loan amount and one of them pays the liability, the creditor cannot recover further amounts from the partners who did not contribute to the liability. Several liability. The converse is several or proportionate liability, where the parties are liable for only their respective obligations. A common example of several liability is in syndicated loan agreements, which will normally provide that each bank is severely liable for its own part of the loan. If one bank fails to advance its agreed part of the loan to the borrower, then the borrower can sue only that bank, and the other banks in the syndicate have no liability. Joint and several liability. Under joint and several liability or all sums, a claimant may pursue an obligation against any one party as if they were jointly liable and it becomes the responsibility of the defendants to sort out their respective proportions of liability and payment. This means that if the claimant pursues one defendant and receives payment, that defendant must then pursue the other obligors for a contribution to their share of the liability. Joint and several liability is most relevant in tort claims, whereby a plaintiff may recover all the damages from any of the defendants regardless of their individual share of the liability. The rule is often applied in negligence cases, though it is sometimes invoked in other areas of law. In the United States, 46 of the 50 states have a rule of joint and several liability, although in response to tort reform efforts, some have limited the applicability of the rule. About two dozen have reformed the rule, with several, Alaska, Arizona, Kansas, Utah, Vermont, Oklahoma, and Wyoming, abolishing. In some instances it is abolished except where the defendants act in concert. Variations. Some jurisdictions have imposed limits on joint and several liability, but without completely abolishing that doctrine. For example, in Ohio only defendants who are responsible for more than 50% of the tortious conduct can be held jointly and severally liable for economic losses. A defendant who bears responsibility for an injury but whose tortious conduct was less than 50% is only responsible for his or her share of the plaintiff's economic loss. Non-economic losses, such as pain and suffering or loss of companionship, can only be assigned proportionately. California allows joint and several liability but only for economic damages. Hawaii allows joint and several liability for all economic losses but only for non-economic losses when the underlying tort is intentional, related to environmental pollution or selected other classes. Examples If Ann is struck by a car driven by Bob, who was served alcohol in Charlotte's Bar and the state has dram shop laws, then both Bob and Charlotte's Bar may be held jointly liable for Ann's injuries. If the jury determines and should be awarded $10 million and that Bob was 90% at fault and Charlotte's bar 10% at fault. Under several or proportionate liability, Bob would have to pay $9 million, 
90% of $10 million, and Charlotte's Bar would have to pay $1 million, 10% of $10 million. If Bob does not have any money and is uninsured and will only recover whatever some Charlotte's Bar and or her insurance provider are able to pay, up to the limit of any liability insurance policy Charlotte may have, plus her own ability to pay, if any, or $1 million, whichever is less. Under joint liability, and may recover the full damages from either of the defendants. If ensued Charlotte's Bar alone, Charlotte's Bar would be liable for the full $10 million despite only being 10% at fault for the injury. If Charlotte's Bar had an insurance policy with a liability limit of less than $10 million, the bar would remain liable for any amount over and above the policy limit. Charlotte would have to join Bob as a defendant in Anne's suit against her. With joint and several liability, if Charlotte's Bar paid the full award of damages, Charlotte's Bar could pursue a separate contribution action against Bob for $9 million. Regardless of the outcome of a contribution action, Charlotte's Bar would remain liable to Anne for the full $10 million. Joint and several liability can make a defendant liable for the full amount of damages suffered by a plaintiff even if that defendant bears only slight fault for the injury. For example, if a child is injured due to the negligence of a crossing guard employed by a school district, and a court finds the crossing guard to be 99% at fault for the child's injury and the school district to be only 1% at fault, the school district would be liable to pay 100% of the damages. In contrast, under several liability, if the crossing guard was unable to pay money toward the judgment the most that the injured child could recover would be 1% of the judgment from the school district. Arguments for and against joint and several liability Joint and several liability is premised on the theory that the defendants are in the best position to apportion damages amongst themselves. Once liability has been established and damages awarded, the defendants are free to litigate amongst themselves to better divide liability. The plaintiff no longer needs to be involved in the litigation and can avoid the cost of continuing litigation. As each defendant has contributed to a single result, the injury of the plaintiff, although there may be differences in the character or scope of their duties, it may be argued that their joint contribution to the single result prevents any reasonable division of the damages. Although one defendant may end up paying more than that defendant tortfeasor's proportionate share of the damages, it is nonetheless thought that it is better for a culpable defendant to overpay that defendant's share of the damages than for the injured plaintiff to be undercompensated for the injury. Where a financially wealthy party can be named or joined as a defendant, a plaintiff has a greater chance of recovering damages than when the defendants have very limited economic resources or are financially insolvent or judgment-proof. Opponents of the principle of joint and several liability argue that its use is unfair to many defendants. Joint and several liability will lead to cases in which a party who has a very small share of the responsibility for a plaintiff's injury may unfairly shoulder the burden of paying all of the damages. When defendants may be held jointly liable, the plaintiff may seek out a defendant with considerable resources, deep pockets, to add to a case, hoping that the defendant will be found to be even 1% to 2% liable for the injury and thus be obligated to pay the entire judgment. For example, where an uninsured drunk driver causes an accident that results in injury, the plaintiff may sue an additional defendant, along with the drunk driver, such as suing the state highway department alleging that a highway defect contributed to the accident, hoping that the additional defendant will be found partly responsible. Microfinance In trying to achieve its aim of alleviating poverty, microfinance often lends to a group of poor, with each member of the group jointly liable. That means that each member is responsible for ensuring that all the other members of the group repay too. 
If one member fails to repay, the members of the group are also held in default. Joint liability solves the information and enforcement problems associated with credit markets by encouraging screening, monitoring, costly state verification, and contract enforcement. Market share liability. Market share liability is a legal doctrine that allows a plaintiff to establish a prima facie case against a group of product manufacturers for an injury caused by a product, even when the plaintiff does not know from which defendant the product originated. The doctrine is unique to the law of the United States and apportions liability among the manufacturers according to their share of the market for the product giving rise to the plaintiff's injury. Origins Market share liability was introduced in the California case Sindel v. Abbott Laboratories. In Sindel, the plaintiffs were injured by day, a drug prescribed to prevent miscarriage. The mothers of the plaintiffs had taken day while pregnant, and expert testimony showed this to be a proximate cause of reproductive tract cancers in the plaintiffs years later. The plaintiffs, however, could not ascertain which drug company distributed the day taken by their mothers. The court responded by allowing the plaintiffs to apportion liability among the defendant drug companies according to their respective shares in the day market. Requirements Sindel laid out the requirements for applying the doctrine of market share liability. First, the defendants in court must constitute substantially all of the market. This is a distinguishing factor from alternative liability that requires that all of the defendants be in court, see Summers v. Tice. Having substantially all of the market makes it more likely that the actual wrongdoer will be in court. A main reason for not requiring all of the relevant market is that as time passes, some manufacturers drop out of the market, and it would raise the bar for the plaintiff too high. Also if all defendants were present, then market share liability would be unnecessary, because the plaintiff would be able to apply the doctrine of alternative liability to put the burden of proving causation onto the defendants. Second, the products must be fungible, for example interchangeable, they must be of the same composition. For example, in Skipworth v. Lead Industries Association, 1997, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court held that the lead paint the defendants sold did not be fungible because the paints had lead pigments containing different chemical formulations, different amounts of lead, and differed in potential toxicity. Third, the defendants, potential tortfeasors, must all have been in the market within the specific time frame surrounding the incident. Fourth, the inability to point to a specific tortfeasor must not be the plaintiff's fault. This is particularly relevant in the pharmaceuticals context, as most plaintiffs are prescribed generic drugs, and thus have no knowledge of who manufactured the product. Exculpatory Evidence Jurisdictions and courts differ on the possibilities open to defendants to absolve themselves of market share liability. In Sindel, California, the court allowed defendants to bring forth exculpatory evidence and thus free themselves of liability. However, in Hemowitz v. Eli Lilly and Company, 1989, which also concerned prescription of day, the appeal court refused to allow exculpatory evidence because it felt that doing so would undermine the theory underpinning market share liability, because liability is based on relevant market share, providing exculpatory evidence will not reduce a defendant's overall share of the market. Subsequent cases Sindel required plaintiffs to join defendant drug companies in a single action. A Wisconsin court took a different approach on this issue in Collins v. Eli Lilly Company in Collins, the court found that the plaintiff could bring a cause of action against a single defendant, and the burden of proof would be shifted to the defendant to show that they did not produce the day taken by the plaintiff's mother. 
Efforts to expand the market share approach beyond day cases have been mostly rejected because of the strict requirements of applying market share liability. Courts have declined to expand the market share approach to asbestos, Becker v. Barron Brothers, handguns, Hamilton v. Beretta, and lead paint, Santiago v. Sherwin-Williams Company. The market share approach has been expanded to cases involving MTBE in the New York case in remethyl tertiary butyl ether. Transferred intent. Transferred intent, or transferred mens rea, or transferred malice, in English law, is a legal doctrine that holds that, when the intention to harm one individual inadvertently causes a second person to be hurt instead, the perpetrator is still held responsible. To be held legally responsible, a court typically must demonstrate that the perpetrator had criminal intent, mens rea, that is, that they knew or should have known that another would be harmed by their actions and wanted this harm to occur. For example, if a murderer intends to kill John, but accidentally kills George instead, the intent is transferred from John to George, and the killer is held to have had criminal intent. Transferred intent also applies to tort law, in which there are generally five areas where transferred intent is applicable, battery, assault, false imprisonment, trespass to land, and trespass to chattels. Generally, any intent to cause any one of these five torts which results in the completion of any of the five tortious acts will be considered an intentional act, even if the actual target of the tort is one other than the intended target of the original tort. See cases of Carnes v. Thompson, 1932, and Bunyan v. Jordan, 1937, for examples. Discussion. In the United States. In U.S. criminal law, transferred intent is sometimes explained by stating that the intent follows the bullet. That is, the intent to kill person A by gunshot would still apply even if the bullet kills an unintended victim, person B, see mens rea. Thus, the intent is transferred between victims. However, intent only transfers between harms of a similar nature. For example, if the defendant shoots at person A intending to kill A but the bullet misses and instead hits a vase, causing it to break, the defendant is not deemed to have intended to break the vase. This is because destruction of property is a kind of harm different from that contemplated by the defendant. Vice versa, an attempt to wreck a car, but causing instead a person to be hurt or killed, can only be sentenced for recklessly causing death, for example involuntary manslaughter. The rationale underlying this distinction is that the defendant has only one intent. If the law were to deem that the defendant intended to destroy property, it would be placing on him an intent he never had, he would now have both the intent to kill and the intent to destroy property. In contrast, where the defendant intends to kill one person but ends up killing another, there is still only one intent, the intent to kill. However, if the crime includes aggravating factors based on the victim's identity, such as a police officer, witness, or protected class, then the factors must be proven to have actually occurred in order to impose an enhanced sentence. For instance, if the defendant intends to kill a police officer in a jurisdiction where that is punishable by death, but instead kills a civilian, the death penalty may not be imposed unless there was another aggravating factor that actually occurred. The principle underlying the Unborn Victims of Violence Act of 2004 in the United States applies only to offenses over which the U.S. government has jurisdiction, namely crimes committed on federal properties, against certain federal officials and employees, and by members of the military, but treats the fetus as a separate person for the purposes of all levels of assault including murder and attempted murder. Sec. 1841. Protection of Unborn Children. A 1. Whoever engages in conduct that violates any of the provisions of law listed in subsection B and thereby causes the death of, 
or bodily injury, as defined in section 1365, 2. A child, who is in utero at the time the conduct takes place, is guilty of a separate offense under this section. 2a. Except as otherwise provided in this paragraph, the punishment for that separate offense is the same as the punishment provided under federal law for that conduct had that injury or death occurred to the unborn child's mother. 2b. An offense under this section does not require proof that 1. The person engaging in the conduct had knowledge or should have had knowledge that the victim of the underlying offense was pregnant, or 2. The defendant intended to cause the death of, or bodily injury to, the unborn child. 2c. If the person engaging in the conduct thereby intentionally kills or attempts to kill the unborn child, that person shall instead of being punished under subparagraph, a. be punished as provided under sections 1111, 1112, and 1113 of this title for intentionally killing or attempting to kill a human being. In the United Kingdom. In the UK the transferred malice doctrine is not without controversy. The House of Lords and Attorney General's Reference No. 3 of 1994 reversed the Court of Appeal decision, 1996, holding that the doctrine of transferred malice could not apply to convict an accused of murder when the defendant had stabbed a pregnant woman in the face, back and abdomen. Some days after she was released from hospital in an apparently stable condition, she went into labor and gave birth to a premature child, who died four months later. The child had been wounded in the original attack but the more substantial cause of death was her prematurity. It was argued that the fetus was part of the mother so that any intention to cause grievous bodily harm, GBH, to the mother was also an intent aimed at the fetus. Lord Mustill criticized the doctrine as having no sound intellectual basis, saying that it was related to the original concept of malice, for example that a wrongful act displayed a malevolence which could be attached to any adverse consequence, and this had long been out of date. Nevertheless, it would sometimes provide a justification to convict when that was a common-sense outcome and so could sensibly be retained. The present case was not a simple transfer from mother to uterine child, but sought to create an intention to cause injury to the child after birth. This would be a double transfer, first from the mother to the fetus, and then from the fetus to the child when it was born. Then one would have to apply the fiction which converts an intention to commit GBH into the mens rea of murder. That was too much. But the accused could be convicted of manslaughter. In R. V. Nongo, the Supreme Court controversially held that under the doctrines of joint enterprise and transferred malice D2 is guilty of V's murder if D1 and D2 voluntarily engage in fighting each other, each intending to kill or cause grievous bodily harm to the other and each foreseeing that the other has the reciprocal intention, and if D1 mistakenly kills V in the course of the fight.